Really, these are the seven core principles of the country itself. It's individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets, and human dignity. Those are the essential foundations of the country. Those are the, the things that we must preserve. Those things are the keys to what made us the greatest nation in the history of the world. It's not even close. We're the, we're the strongest, most successful, most powerful, most benevolent nation in the history of mankind. And the reason for that is because we were built on these sound foundations. But what's happening right now is you have a growing element of people who don't understand that. You have a growing number of elected officials, even in the United States Congress, that have disdain for those principles, and they want to tear them down, tear down the foundations, and replace it with something else. So that's the fight here. I mean, when it boils down to it, we have lots of skirmishes on policy and individual pieces of legislation, but at the end of the day, we're fighting to preserve those core principles, and I, I think we've got to speak with clarity and conviction and consistency about that to let more of the American people understand those foundations. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Welcome to another episode of American Potential. Thank you for being with us. What a wild time in Washington, D.C., trying to get uh, some, some spending bills figured out and keep, keep the government open. Uh, look, on October 3rd, 2023, the Speaker of the House was ousted, and it took several weeks and rounds of voting before a new Speaker was elected. The House elected Speaker Mike Johnson to the role on October 25th. So what's it been like for him since being elected to this new role? Well, Akash Chogali, Vice President of Government Affairs for Americans for Prosperity, and Scott Simon, Americans for Prosperity, Louisiana State Director, got the opportunity to sit down with Speaker Johnson and ask him about his new role. Today, we have Akash Chogli on to talk a little bit about the interview, and then we'll get you a chance to listen to what Speaker Johnson had to say. Akash, thanks for being with us. Good to be back with you, Jeff. So this it was a great opportunity for you to go and uh, and and interview the speaker, huh? It was very cool. It's a, the first of its kind interview for the speaker. It was the first time a conservative group got a chance to sit down with him as speaker in kind of a video recorded format. Um, and what we got a chance to do is really learn about who Speaker Johnson is past the headlines that are that are in the news every day. His, his upbringing, his philosophy, his guiding principles, his goal for the year, his goal as a leader for Congress. So really a, a great opportunity. His staff is phenomenal. And the uh, conversation was a very good. I'm excited for, uh, for your audience and our activists across the country to get a chance to hear it. Yeah. And it's going to be great watching, watching this. So stay tuned. You get to see it. And by the way, if you're listening to this on the audio version of the podcast, you can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, just it's American potential YouTube channel, and you can watch this whole thing uh, right there. And it's it's a great opportunity. the The video I was really impressed. The video is like 4K camera. I mean, it was it was pretty good stuff. So, what we, are some of when, the things when, when oh, you go get ahead. the speaker of the house? When you get the speaker of the house, we had the uh, we had the A team for <laughs> yeah. that time. So you it was a great opportunity. You didn't just bring the camcorder in for that, I guess, right? Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, what are some of the things you talked about with uh, Speaker Johnson? Yeah, absolutely. So first is his upbringing. He comes from uh, from pretty modest background, and I won't spoil it. But obviously, he's from Louisiana. Um, has a modest background. His uh, his father was in public service, and he talks about a little bit how that that shaped his life and his decision making. The work he did before 
he got to Congress. Um, the reason our state director from Louisiana joined us is the speaker and he actually served together in the state legislature in Louisiana. Mm. So they know each other. They've known each other for a few years. Um, so we talked about his background uh, and then kind of like what I said, right, his principles, his guiding vision. Uh, because I think a lot of the times we dissect every single decision that somebody makes as a leader, as a lawmaker, every single thing they say. Um, but we, what we really want to do is understand the foundations of who Mike Johnson is, what he believes and what his motivations are. And that's a little bit of what we what we got into. And, and what was clear is that he's a true believer in the conservative cause. And we're uh, we're really blessed to have somebody like that as as speaker of the House, especially in these trying times for our country. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talked about being a leader and, and being speaker. And I mean, it's definitely a very, very difficult job especially when you have thin majorities like the Republicans do. But what makes him a policy champion in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. He has been a policy champion long before he became speaker uh, in October. He, a few years back, led the Republican Study Committee, which your listeners might be familiar with. It's the largest caucus of conservative lawmakers uh, in the House, 130 some odd members. He was the head of that group. Um, he's been a partner of AFPs for many years, really across the board on the issues we work on, in particular economic freedom, issues, um, but you name it, you know, constitutional liberty, constitutional uh, rights issues, free speech issues, the administrative state, spending, taxes, labor, you know, really across the board. He um, is one of the very few people, not not very few, I should say, but one of the few who um, has essentially a, a perfect or must be near perfect voting record with us in his time in Congress. But I think there's there's one other thing that really separates him. And it's, uh, it's partially why I think he became speaker. Um, he's not reflective of the middle of the Republican conference. He is certainly one of the most conservative people in Congress, even among Republicans. It's his temperament and the way he carries himself and the way he conducts himself um, with his, his fellow lawmakers, his constituents back in Louisiana, with outside groups like ours, um, just uh, as kind as could be, as, as polite as could be. Um, there doesn't seem to be a single ounce of animosity in his body. And I think that's something that's lost on too many, too many members of Congress who feel like in order to fight for your principles and be true to your beliefs, uh, you have to act like you hate your opponents. And he just does not have any of that, um, which I think not only endears him to us, but it endeared him to the House Republican Conference, including people who may not agree with him on a number of issues that um, he kind of was the most conservative candidate who could win because of the things that went beyond his policy beliefs and kind of got into who he is as a person. Yeah, I mean, we all watched the drama trying to get a, a a new speaker and, you know, rolling through s several members stepping up and trying to get the votes and couldn't. And then all of a sudden they just go, well, there's Mike Johnson. How about him? And, I mean, it was like within 24 hours, he was speaker. Pretty remarkable, really. Right. It, it was. And, and I'm by no means saying that I sort of predicted he was. But if you talk to people to follow Congress closely, his name was always one of the ones kind of floating in the background. Um, only to really be seriously considered when he decided to put his name forward. But if you actually ask experts who really can get to 218 votes, that list was very, very small. Um, and he was on that list of people, right? It was maybe three or four members long. He was on that list and he was the most conservative one on that list. And ultimately, that's why he ended up winning the job. I mean, it's actually remarkable. I don't know that we will ever, I mean, it, to have such a conservative speaker with such a thin Republican majority really is remarkable. I mean, have we ever had a more conservative speaker? Certainly not in the, uh, in the modern era, right? I mean, yeah. I think you go back, we've, we've had, you know, love him or hate him. We've had people who are conservatives as speaker 
Um, but I think, you know, as conservative as Mike Johnson, with the background that Mike Johnson has, with the slim majority that we have facing a Democratic Congress and a Democratic White House, facing record inflation and just the absolute calamity that the Biden administration has created on any number of issues, like this unique situation absolutely demanded a speaker like Mike Johnson. And the odds of actually getting somebody like that are so, so small. Um, it's something that we really shouldn't take for granted. And, and, I, and I think it also means that we should be realistic about the expectations for what he can achieve in this situation and hope that we're in a better situation as far as governing authority and power come January 2025. Yeah. Uh, before this will be the last question before we get to the interview. But what do you think that our listeners would be most surprised about as they listen to this? Yeah, um, there, there were two questions, and I'll tease him a little bit, that I, that I was really curious to hear his answer about. One was, um, I asked him about this movement. You and I have talked about this a little bit, Jeff. This movement bubbling up on the right that says we need to abandon our commitment to free markets and, and limited government, that you know, small government has failed communities and families, and it's failed social conservatives. Mike Johnson is a social conservative first, I, I would argue. He, may, he would even argue um, he has some deeply, deeply held convictions. Yeah. Um, his answer to that question, is it necessary to jettison limited government in order to advance social conservatism and protect families, communities, um, you know, and, and kind of people that have an issue with, with corporate activism and things like that? He spoke to that a little bit, which I thought was interesting. Um, and the other is he talks about what he thinks are the seven core tenets of American conservatism which he actually thinks are the seven core tenets of the founding of the country, right? And, and obviously, as conservatives, that's we're trying to conserve the, <laughs> the founding. Um, th those are two questions that I would love uh, for people to really listen closely about the, the seven core tenets of, of American conservatism and, and how conservatives should approach this moment that we're in and whether you know, free markets and limited government still work. Yeah. Well, Akash, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll go right now to the video. Here's Akash and Scott and Speaker Mike Johnson. Welcome to the latest in our Congressional Conversation series. My name is Akash Chogli. I'm the Vice President of Government Affairs at Americans for Prosperity. And I'm Scott Simon, State Director of Louisiana for Americans for Prosperity. We are super excited about today's conversation, a very special conversation with the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson of the great state of Louisiana. Speaker Johnson, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. I know our millions of conservative activists across the country are really looking forward to this conversation. It's another busy day. Let me just start here. Are you having fun yet? Uh, fun. It depends on how you describe it, guys. Um, it's been a whirlwind. I've had the job as Speaker of the House maybe for 40 days or so. They all, all the days kind of run together. In some ways, it feels like four years already. It's, it's, uh, there, there's no downtime in this job. I think it's the first time in history, in the history of the Congress, where the, the speakership changed over midstream, you know, halfway through the Congress. And normally when you become speaker, you have a long ramp up period, you hire all your 100 member staff and you get everything organized. And uh, we had to sort of do it overnight. And so uh, we were building the plane as we flown it uh, for the first five weeks or so. Uh, really, truly, there's been just a couple of moments of downtime through that whole period. Uh, but it's been great, very productive, lots of great things going on here. I think the dust is going to settle soon, and maybe, maybe we'll have fun in the first part of the next year. Mr. Speaker, we've had uh, the pleasure of knowing each other for uh, a few years now, going back to our time in the Louisiana legislature. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your roots back in the Bayou State. Sure. Um, Scott, it was a great pleasure to serve with you in the legislature. I miss those days. They were simpler times. Uh, I grew up in northwest Louisiana in a town called Shreveport. Um, I'm a, uh, the, the son of a firefighter. My dad, when I was 12 years old, 
was uh, permanently disabled and critically burned in a line of duty in, a, in an explosion on the job. And uh, that was in 1984. I was the oldest of four kids. I, I said, and I said in my speech before I took the gavel, that my highest aspiration in life was to be the chief of the Shreveport Fire Department when I grew up, because we, we grew up literally across the street from the Fire and Police Training Academy. And I, I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. I still do. Uh, but when my father got burned, it changed the trajectory of our lives. I was the oldest of four kids, and uh, we all were sort of urged to go to school and, and do other things. And so I wound up graduating from LSU and, and uh, then the LSU Law School. I was a religious liberty litigator for about 20 years. And then sometime around 2015, our sitting state representative called me and said, I'm going to run for judge. It was Jeff Thompson, a friend of yours, another conservative. And he said, you ought to run uh, in the district. And so Kelly and I prayed about it, decided we should do it. So I wound up running uh, uh, unopposed in that one and uh, served in the legislature for about a year and a half. And then my predecessor, John Fleming, called me, Congressman Fleming, and said, I'm going to run for Senate. You ought to run for Congress. And so we prayed about it again, and that's how we wound up here. So that was four terms ago, about seven years ago. Um, and uh, being Speaker of the House is not anything I ever aspired to or thought would be possible, but here we are. What's one thing people in Washington might, uh, might want to know about you? Well, that we believe in the cause. I mean, I, I've, I've dedicated my life to that. We have, Kelly and I have four children of our own, five when you count our 40-year-old son that we took in when he was a teenager. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about the country that they're going to inherit. And uh, I, I didn't run for Congress because I wanted a title. This is not important to me. What's important is maintaining this constitutional republic that we have. You know, it's still an experiment on the world stage. We're only 247 years into this. We don't know how long it's going to last. And we're facing serious headwinds right now, real challenges to the foundations of the country. And, you know, I have a huge toolbox of totally unmarketable skills, guys. I, I, you know, I've, I've, uh, but, but they happen to come in handy right now. The background in constitutional law is really important and has been helpful here. Um, you know, the legal background and, uh, and the interest I have in policy. And so trying to pull all that together and put it to use for the cause and the country and and try to save the republic. It sounds like a bumper sticker slogan, but that's really what's at stake right now, and that's why we're here, and that's why I'm fighting every day. So as the largest conservative grassroots organization in the country, Speaker, we've talked to more than six million people this year on the phones and at their front doors. As you know, the number one issue we hear over and over and over again that they're most concerned about is the economy. Broadly speaking, what is your vision for the economy and the role of government in it? Well, we need less government. I mean, I'm, I'm from the Reagan school. You know, we grew up in the 80s, and. Uh, he said, government's not the solution to the problem, government is the problem. We need less government in our lives, less government intervention. Um, you know, the, the current team in charge, the Biden administration and the Senate Democrats who run the, the Senate, the majority there, they believe truly that we ought to grow and expand the, the state and their status in that regard. And that's a, a tremendous uh, affront to our, the pr preservation of our liberty. Um, it makes life more difficult. They, they want more regulation. They want higher taxation. They want to gather more resources and collect them in the power centers, you know, a, a highly centralized uh, federal government. That does not serve the people well. It does not help us preserve our freedom. And it, it ultimately leads to less liberty and opportunity and security for more people. And so we believe in the opposite of those things. And I think we would do well uh, to return to those principles. I think we're gonna have an opportunity in this upcoming election cycle. Because right now we have a very clear distinction, um, a very clear contrast between these two governing philosophies, worldviews, if you will. Uh, the, the left, the Democrats, the progressives, they want government to intervene in every aspect of your life. 
and we want to get government out of your life. And uh, I think the, the two results of those two different philosophies is really clear to see that the, the difference between what those two things yield. I think the people are beginning to see that in spades, and I think it's going to inure to our benefit. How do you explain it to the average American why Bidenomics hasn't worked? <laughs> Well, one indicator is that they don't use the phrase anymore. I think it's been a few weeks since uh, anyone, uh, any of the Democrats or the president himself have uttered the, uh, the term because now people know what that means. I mean, it, it really has been uh, that the reason that the cost of living is so high that you can't afford to put gasoline in your pickup truck and that, uh, you know, your, your, your liberty and your opportunity are being reduced. Um, it's part of the reason that we have even increasing crime rates because of the way they've handled the economy. They, you know, the Democrats in Washington have spent $4 trillion just over the, in the last couple of years added. We're having debates, even as we speak today, about more supplemental spending that the White House wants to, uh, wants to impose on the American taxpayer without any payoffs and no pay-fors for that. Um, we're having a real struggle right now about changing the way Washington works and thinks about spending. But it's Bidenomics and the reckless spending that has gotten us into the situation we're in. Some of these, my colleagues subscribe to modern monetary theory, which is unicorn fantasy economics that, that you know, they, they were arguing a couple of years ago that there, there is no amount, there's no limit to what the United States government can spend. They quite literally said, because we own the printing presses. Well, how's that gonna work out? We said, what about inflation? Oh, that's not a real concern. Well, we see where that's gotten us. So um, they're, not, they're not espousing some of those views as loudly as they were a couple of years ago now, because interest rates are rising and it's crushing hardworking families. But that's what Bidenomics has wrought. And we're gonna remind the voters of that going into the next election cycle. What do our nation founding principles mean to you and how can we reaffirm them and the importance of our children and our grandchildren? Scott, it's a great question. Um, I quote Reagan all the time, it's not intentional, it's just I think of it, because he had a way of articulating this very well. In his farewell address, he said famously, you know, they called me the great communicator, but I really wasn't that. And I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, I was just communicating great things, and the same great things that have guided our nation since its founding. Today, we, all of us, are stewards of those great things, and what are they? I call them the seven core principles of American conservatism, but you could say, Really, these are the seven core principles of the country itself. It's individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets, and human dignity. Under each of those, there are lots of subcategories, and we could unpack it for hours today, the three of us talking about that. But those are the essential foundations of the country. Those are the, the things that we must preserve. Those things are the keys to what made us the greatest nation in the history of the world. It's not even close. We're the, we're the strongest, most successful, most powerful, most benevolent nation in the history of mankind, and the reason for that is because we were built on these sound foundations. But what's happening right now is you have a growing element of people who don't understand that. You have a growing number of elected officials, even in the United States Congress, that have disdain for those principles, and they want to tear them down, tear down the foundations and replace it with something else. Uh, they want to turn us into some sort of European-style socialist you know, utopia, and we all know that's a fool's errand. It's a dangerous thing because you sacrifice your liberty in the process. So that's the fight here. I mean, when it boils down to it, we had lots of skirmishes on policy and individual pieces of legislation, but at the end of the day, we're fighting to preserve those core principles. And I, I think we've got to speak with clarity and conviction and consistency about that to let more of the American people understand those foundations. Those principles have facilitated what many of us endearingly call the American dream. Right. What does the American dream mean to you? You know, at its essence, the American dream is, I think it's real simple. If, if you're willing to work hard and play by the rules, you can make a better life for yourself and your children. I mean, that's what's defined us as a country. And uh, I, 
the problem is right now, the American dream has been pulled further beyond the grasp of more people because they're being crushed by inflation. They're being crushed by government regulation and taxation and all the things that, that uh, we abhor. And so it's made it harder and harder for people to, to sort of broaden that pathway out of poverty and make it up to the next rung on the ladder. And so the American dream to many people um, it seems like just that. And it's something that's it's, it's not achievable. It's a dream beyond their grasp. We have to bring it back within their grasp. And I think we have the answers to all the challenges facing us, the answers that will make that possible for more people. And it's something definitely worth fighting for and preserving. Well, what do you see as the importance of grassroots organizations like uh, Americans for Prosperity in the pursuit of uh, that goal of growing the conservative movement? And uh, how and why can AFP be helpful in this cause? Yeah, look, I'll say this. I'm, I'm a big fan of AFP. I think it's, and I've said this many times over the years, that it's one of the most effective organizations I've ever seen at doing this exact thing. And that is to, I mean, you, you do a number of things really well. It's voter education. I mean, it's critically important right now. The founder said, and Reagan said again, he said, we want an informed patriotism, an informed patriotism. Uh, and and uh, AFP does an extraordinary job with that. It's, it's about... Um, voter education, it's about uh, voter turnout, it's about mobilizing people at, at the time when it's critical to get that done. And also, um, part of that education of voters is holding elect officials accountable uh, and uh, letting uh, constituents know how their elected officials are voting and how they're leading. And uh, that can be a very, very effective tool at a time like this. The use of social media, the use of you know all the media outlets that we have. Uh, Mail pieces, AFPs had some of the most effective mail pieces I've ever seen. I mean, we've had we've had lawmakers do a 180 on their positions because they were called out. Uh, they would say one thing during an election cycle and then act differently. Um, and I, I think that is a really, really critical part of the uh, uh, a role that needs to be played in the upcoming election cycle in particular. Mr. Speaker, in recent years, some in our own party have called for the right to abandon that commitment to free markets and limited government. They say that those ideas have actually failed to improve the well-being of families and communities. What is your opinion of this movement? Do free markets and limited government still work to improve people's lives, or do conservatives need to embrace bigger government? Listen, we're, we're bullish and uh, insistent on free markets and limited government. And it, this is, uh, we have a recent case study. I mean, if you look at right before COVID hit, you know, the first couple of years of the Trump administration, we had achieved the greatest economy in the history of the world, not just the United States. Every single demographic, everybody was doing better. All boats were rising. And the reason is because we, we doubled down on those principles. We reduced regulations. We, we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We, we unburdened the free market and, and, and those who are the job producers, the risk takers, the entrepreneurs, and we allowed them to flourish. And so everyone did better. Then the Biden administration comes in and they, they, they turn the dial exactly back the other direction and, and they, they double down on taxation, regulation, big government as a solution to everything. And so uh, we have to defend those principles. Now, there is a, a difference between supporting the free market and opposing some of these big woke corporations and their radical agendas, where they're using this for social experimentation and forcing ideology on people. You'll see a lot of conservatives now uh, kind of uh, having a backlash against that kind of movement in corporate America. Um, but that doesn't mean the government should go in and, and regulate. It means that uh, the market should work those things out. And if allowed that opportunity, it will work out. The American people are not in favor of that nonsense. And uh, you've seen boycotts and you've seen changes in market share and corporations that have gone too far down that road. And uh, that's the beauty of our system, that, that consumers can move with their feet, the market can adjust, but the government's in the middle of it and impedes all of that. And so we just gotta get back to the fundamentals. I think they still work. 
how do we talk to the whole country, including those who may disagree with us or are unsure about the conservative belief system, and how do we grow the conservative movement? I think we've got to, again, just speak with, with clarity, conviction, consistency about these core principles we're talking about today and why that's good for everyone. You know, tone is important right now. Um, the message is important, but the way you deliver it is critically important as well. People need to know that, that we understand where they're coming from. We understand the struggles that they're facing. Uh, one thing about the, the Trump, uh, first Trump presidency is he brought into our tent uh, you know, more blue collar workers, more hardworking families who had traditionally always voted Democrat. But they looked and they saw that what President Trump was talking about, what the House and Senate Republicans were talking about, uh, was good for them and their families, uh, for their safety and security and all of those things. And so when we speak to swing voters, when we speak to people in the suburbs, the, the message really isn't all that different um, wherever you are. It's that you talk about how those principles are good for everybody. Um, I, I genuinely believe that our conservative philosophy and our principles are the things that will lead to greater human flourishing. Ultimately, that's the objective. And we can see now, because we have objective data, that the other worldview doesn't lead us there. So that's the contrast we have to explain in simple terms. And, and we're encouraging our candidates and our challengers to some of these open seats in Congress to take every town hall opportunity you can, every candidate forum, and just speak from the heart. And that's what people want to hear, and that's what they want to see. Whenever your time as speaker is through, what do you want to have accomplished and what do you want the country to believe about Mike Johnson and the House Republican Conference that he led? It's a good question. Um, to me, it's about restoring faith ultimately in this institution. You know, right now the, the people's faith in Congress is uh, right about somewhere on the scale with pancreatic cancer, I mean, and favorability, right? I mean, it's, it, that's not much of an exaggeration. We, we have to do better. And, and the reason they don't believe in, in the institution is because they've seen people failing here. They've seen a lack of trust and transparency. Um, that's what I'm trying to bring back from the Speaker's office on down. We're trying to uh, decentralize the power of the Speaker's office, make it a more member-driven and organic kind of uh, decision-making process, empowering the chairman here of these committees of jurisdiction because they're the subject matter experts. Some of that's inside the building, but if we do that well, we can demonstrate that we can govern well and that will ultimately restore trust. At the end of the day, I want him to say, and I hope it will be true at the end, that you know Johnson, for all of his um, misgivings, he he uh, he restored honesty and trust to that to that um, that center of power. And I think that's really really important that the people in a constitutional republic in a government of by and for the people trust their institutions. And, and right now, we've got a lot of work to do in that regard. Absolutely. Quick rapid fire. Quick rapid fire. Your favorite food. Oh, that's a tough one, Scott. Uh, um, uh, something Italian, chicken parmesan, probably. Favorite football team? LSU, LSU, not even close. <laughs> All right, favorite holiday tradition? Uh, Christmas, we've got a big family. Family's a big thing in Louisiana. We all have big families and we gather them all together and uh, we have lots of traditions related to that. My, my favorite is the uh, white elephant uh, gift exchange when you get about you know 40 family members around. And get, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Do you have a New Year's resolution yet? Grow the majority in the House. It's easy. There you go. Mr. There Speaker, you go. thank you so much for being so generous with your time today, for your partnership with us at Americans for Prosperity. Most importantly, for your principled conservative leadership. We are grateful for what you're doing here, grateful for your time, and looking forward to working with you and your phenomenal staff. Thank you so much. Next time you visit with me, I'll have a little more sleep and I won't look so haggard. <laughs> I never do. Looking good, looking good. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. All right, well, fascinating interview with Speaker Mike Johnson. What a good man. You can tell 
you know, you can tell people by looking at them and just the calmness in their soul. And that's what I get with Speaker Johnson is just and maybe that's why he became speaker. Right. This is a tough job. Being speaker of the House has to be one of the toughest jobs there is it probably in, in government. You know, if you're the president, you kind of just one person gets to decide what the executive branch is going to do. Ultimately, they're the head of that. In the Senate, you know, you work and you go negotiate and those sorts of things. But I tell you, being the Speaker of the House, especially, especially now with a thin majority, being a conservative Speaker of the House, trying to, to, you know, get us to a good place to where we can get the spending cuts that are necessary to get us back on, uh, uh, on fiscal sanity in the United States of America, that's a tough, tough job. And I think Mike Johnson has done an amazing job of that. And I look forward to, you know, his solutions in Congress for the current crisis that we have, uh, funding crisis. But more importantly, I look forward to many more years of Speaker Mike Johnson. Listen, liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Don't ever take liberty and freedom for granted. Go out there defend freedom and defend liberty. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. 